0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it's wonderful to see all of you tonight in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Thank you so much for braving the cold. Uh, I want to make sure that you're aware that on view now is a suite of fabulous exhibitions uh, throughout the building, Superheroes in Gotham on our second floor in its final month of run. Um, and uh, on this floor, we have a great exhibition on computer history, Silicon City, computer history made in New York, as well as Gotti's Maesta and uh, our Picasso Tricorn, united with selections from our own permanent collection. If you're not already a member of the New York Historical Society, please join. We have brochures that you can pick up on your way out and we can make it very, very easy for you to become members. Members support all of the work at this institution. Tonight's program, Leaders in War, Charles de Gaulle, is a distinguished Lerman Fellow at NYHS Lecture. It will be my great pleasure in just a moment to introduce our distinguished Lerman Fellow at the New York Historical Society, Andrew Roberts, who is our speaker this evening. But first, let me once again thank our great trustee and eminent Lincoln scholar, as well as distinguished thinker and writer on the subject of gold, uh, which I've recently become quite well acquainted with, Lewis Lerman. Mr. Lerman has not only made it possible for us to be dazzled by Andrew Roberts with lectures over the past months on Napoleon, Churchill, Thatcher, Hitler, and now tonight, Charles de Gaulle, but also together with a small group of what were in those days known as new trustees about 13 years ago now, uh, really had the vision of the rebirth of our institution as New York's great destination for history. So I want to thank you, Lou, both for creating this outstanding lecture series, and also for your vision and your role in our success. Thank you so much. I would also like to recognize and thank the chair of our board of trustees, Pam Schaffler, and the chair of our executive committee and our chairman emeritus, Roger Hertog. Thank you so much for all that you have done on behalf of this great institution. In attendance this evening as well are trustees Lon Jacobs and Ira Unschuld, and I want to thank them, as well as my great colleague, Dale Gregory, our Vice President for Public Programs, from whom you will hear at the close of this event. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of our speaker's books will be available for sale in our museum store. We are very pleased indeed to welcome back Andrew Roberts, the Distinguished Lerman Fellow at New York Historical Society. Andrew Roberts is currently a visiting professor at the War Studies Department at King's College London. He's a member of many respected boards and committees, is a director of the Harry Guggenheim Foundation in New York, and in 2012, he was awarded the William Penn Prize. In 2007, he delivered the prestigious White House lecture Andrew Roberts' recent book, Napoleon A Life*, was the 2014 winner of the Grand Prix of the Fondation Napoleon and 2015 winner of the Los Angeles Times Biography Prize. He's the author and editor of 12 books, including Masters and Commanders, How Four Titans Won the War in the West, 1941 to 1945. As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off, and now please join me in welcoming Andrew Roberts (laughs) to the stage.
1: Sorry, I was just switching off my cell phone. I was speaking to an audience of 360 American colonels and generals when my wife called me. Um, I don't want that to, to happen again. I did answer the call, I hasten to. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour to be invited to uh, address you about Charles de Gaulle. Wonderful also that this should be uh, another um, sell-out audience. Um, Some of you might remember the last time when uh, some people turned up who had tickets but nowhere to sit. There was a little bit of a scuffle at the back. Uh, It was tremendously gratifying. (laughs) When my friend Philip Ziegler was writing his definitive biography of Lord Mountbatten in the 1980s, he felt compelled to place a notice on his desk which read, Remember, he was a great man. Mountbatten indulged in so many acts of petty self-glorification that Philip had to remind himself constantly that beneath all the showmanship and self-promotion was indeed a serious and substantial figure. During this speech, I want you to remember that Charles de Gaulle was also a great man and that uh, although I'm an admirer of him, I'm also an Englishman. Uh, <laughs> one of the tribe of Anglo-Saxons for whom he had such a deep antipathy, uh, antipathy, which uh, in the case of Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt was entirely and enthusiastically reciprocated. (laughs) In several of these lectures of mine, you'll have noticed that the leaders I've chosen were deeply influenced in their later thinking by major political events that happened in their teens. Margaret Thatcher listening to Winston Churchill's speeches about the Battle of Britain when she was 14, the French Revolution breaking out when Napoleon was 19, Churchill's father's resignation as Chancellor of the Exchequer when he was 12, and so on. For Charles de Gaulle, the crystallising event was France's humiliation at the hands of Britain in the Fashoda crisis of 1897, which although it actually took place when he was only seven, he heard about constantly during his teenage years because his father, a Northern French minor aristocrat and nationalist, regularly harped on about it. Very briefly and crudely, French expansionism in North Africa along an east-west axis was halted and rebuffed bloodlessly at the tiny mud hut village of Fashoda in the Sudan by a powerful British force under the command of Lord Kitchener, something that de Gaulle pair never forgot nor forgave. Charles de Gaulle's anglophobia of uh, June 1940, when he was living in London as a guest of the British uh, after the fall of France, has been explained by his biographer Jean Lacouture in terms of his quote his childhood, which had been marked by the sound of the word fashoda uttered around him, but also several other sources, including, quote, because he spoke not English but German, because he had not thought much of the conduct of the British during the 1914-18 war, and because he was accustomed to a right-wing press in which all the misfortunes of French diplomacy were put down to the intrigues of perfidious Albion. Because he blamed Chamberlain for the withdrawal at Munich, and lastly, because he thought that Britain's military support of France during the last 10 months had been derisory. Part of de Gaulle's fascinating, infuriating personality was also derived from his family background, partly from his highly chauvinistic reading of French history, partly from his army cadetship at the Saint Cyr Military Academy, and partly from the humiliations that France underwent at the hands of Germany between 1870 and 1940. One might take issue with several of these views of de Gaulle's. Uh, It wasn't the British army that mutinied in the trenches in 1917, for example, but the French. But my purpose isn't to investigate the origins of de Gaulle's prejudice, but rather to place it in the context of his war leadership. I'll argue that his prejudice against Churchill and the British, which, though virulent, was as nothing compared to his resentment against Franklin Roosevelt and the Americans, um, was actually an important prerequisite for General de Gaulle's success and was primarily the thing that differentiated his from the other free governments in wartime London. How else was de Gaulle to ensure that France was treated differently after victory was won from, say, Italy, who also fought on both sides in the conflict and was also occupied by both Axis and the Allies, instead of the suffering instead of suffering the fate of Italy, France was allowed to have a zone of Berlin to occupy. She secured a security seat on the Security Council seat on the United Nations and was treated as one of the victor powers. Even though Italy had changed sides in September 1943, whereas the bulk of Frenchmen didn't rise up against the Nazis for a further 11 months. The reason for the different treatment was the truculence of Charles de Gaulle, who constantly demanded parity of esteem for his country with Britain and America and his success in creating a myth that supported that. He didn't just bite the hands that fed him. He made them his hors d'oeuvre, entree and puddings. <laughs> um, but he had to, for it was the only way that he could show that France still had teeth. In the words of a recent biographer, uh, de Gaulle achieved his diplomatic success for the free French movement uh, almost single-handedly through the constant deployment of ingratitude, intransigence, ferocious sarcasm, and volcanic eruptions of contempt. De Gaulle's contradictions are an essential part of his myth. As another historian has put it, he was a soldier who spent much of his career in opposition to the army, a conservative who embraced change, and a man of overweening ambition who twice renounced power voluntarily. He might also have added that he was an imperialist who withdrew France from Algeria, a fiscal conservative who nationalized banks, and a, ma- and a French patriot who nevertheless envisaged the army invading metropolitan France from Algeria in order to make him president in 1958. All of these contradictions can be explained away, however, in the single word, Gaulism. Charles de Gaulle knew no fear, something he proved again and again. He was so brave in World War I, in which he was thrice wounded and made five escape attempts from POW camps, that he was pronounced missing presumed dead on two occasions and thus had the enormously gratifying opportunity of reading his own obituary not once but twice. (laughs) Can you imagine anything more satisfying than that? Um, especially as they paid high tribute to him. Uh, his personal courage was legendary. After one of the 14 post-war assassination attempts on him, and the n- nearest one to being successful in August 1962, he dismissively told his trembling Prime Minister, George Pompidou, they shoot like pigs. <laughs> Another attractive aspect to his personality was his love for his family, especially his profoundly disabled daughter, Anne. At her funeral in 1948, after she had died at the age of 20, de Gaulle stayed at the graveside at uh, Colombay-des-Deux-Eglises with his wife Yvonne for a long time before leading her away with the words, come, now she is like everyone else. I do recommend visiting uh, Colombay uh, for any of you who haven't. It's a magnificent um, uh, little corner of France. Says a lot about, uh, about de Gaulle. His, uh, his and his family's um, graves are... Uh, among, uh, uh, very moving that. Otherwise, in the words of a uh, recent newspaper article, he was distant to friends, suspicious of allies, manipulative of colleagues, harsh to subordinates. When the French fight for mankind, they are wonderful, wrote André Marois. Uh, when they fight for themselves, they are nothing. In 1940, they were fighting for mankind, but having lost 90,000 men killed... 250,000 wounded, and 1.9 million captured in six weeks, they gave up the fight. In the interwar years, de Gaulle had predicted that advanced tac- tank tactics and blitzkrieg would deliver future victories, but no one listened to him, until after he was proved right at least. On the same day that Marshal Petain decided to surrender to Germany, the junior war minister in the outgoing administration decided not to. For a Frenchman to leave France, possibly forever, is a terrible wrench, and de Gaulle was to be condemned to death in this uh, for having done it. Yet on the 17th of June 1940, he flew into the pages of history when he took off from Merinac Airport in a tiny biplane sent by Churchill with only two bags to his name and 100,000 francs that the outgoing Prime Minister Paul Renault gave him, and he landed at Heston Airport just outside London at 12.30 p.m. The very next day, the 18th of June, he broadcast the speech on the BBC that won him untarnishable glory. After frankly admitting that the Germans' tactics had submerged France, and the French government was in the process of capitulation, he said, must hope vanish. Is the defeat final? No. Believe me, for I know what I'm talking about and I tell you that nothing is lost for France. The same means that beat us may one day bring victory, for France is not alone. She is not alone. She is not alone. She has an immense empire behind her. She can unite with the British Empire, which commands the sea and which is carrying on the struggle. Like England, she can make unlimited use of the vast industries of the United States. This war has not been decided by the Battle of France. This is a worldwide war. I, General de Gaulle, now in London, call upon the French officers and soldiers who are on British soil or who may be on it, with their arms or without them. I call upon the engineers and the specialised workers in the armaments who are or who may be on British soil to get in contact with me. Whatever happens, the flame of French resistance must not and shall not go out. Very few people heard the speech, it's true, but millions were to read it as the French press was not yet censored. Suddenly, the name of this minor minister who most Frenchmen hadn't heard of, a name of course reminiscent of the ancient Gauls who fought the invading Romans, represented the spirit of resistance to the Nazis. It's just as well that nobody at the time pointed out that the 18th of June, 1940 was the 125th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. Um, (laughs) But then in his uh, extensive writings about the French army, de Gaulle managed to admit mentioning the word uh, Waterloo altogether. Once in London, de Gaulle could do little more than stand on ceremony, insist on his rights and plan for free French operations, which, like the raid on Dakar in uh, West Africa, were militarily undistinguished. He was hampered by the fact that um, many more Frenchmen fought for Vichy than for the free French. So the years 1940 to 44 were hard ones for him and the relatively small numbers of free Frenchmen who heeded his call. Furthermore, within three weeks of his landing in London, Churchill ordered the sinking of the French fleet at Oran. de Gaulle characterised that action as one of those dark bursts by which the repressed instinct of this people smashes all barriers. Uh, Almost 1,300 French sailors were killed in 10 minutes for the loss of no Britons uh, in what has been described as the 20th century's most one-sided sea battle. Although some in the Royal Navy, generally the officers, had qualms about what had happened, Winston Churchill was cheered to the echo in the House of Commons chamber by MPs who were relieved that France's mighty navy, the fourth largest in the world, could not now fall into German hands and be used to help invade Britain. It was the first time Churchill had raised a big cheer in uh, his uh, premiership. And it was also the moment when Americans realized for the first time that Britain did have the will and the necessary ruthlessness to fight on. By the way, I was sad to read uh, recently that the French military cemetery at Iran has been desecrated by uh, Islamic fundamentalist vandals. The military adventure in which de Gaulle's free French, along with a British force, attempted to capture Dakar, the capital of Senegal in September 1940, was a disaster. It was called Operation Menace, but uh, determined Vichy resistance Saw off De Gaulle's unimpressive attack. The uh, the Vichy forces knew that uh, De Gaulle was coming. The uh, the whole secrecy of the operation was lost, and it was uh, it was um, a catastrophic. We went to Dakar with General De Gaulle. Went the chorus of a song sung by drunken Royal Marines on the way back home. We sailed round in circles and did bugger all. Um, The way that French officers had had, uh, toasted to Dakar in French restaurants in London uh, before they left, uh, left the British security services severely doubtful about sharing intelligence with de Gaulle, um, which was to become a serious bone of contention later on in the war. Indeed, he was only told about the plans for D-Day on the 4th of June 1944, uh, a mere 48 hours before it was launched. The adjectives used to describe de Gaulle during this period include... These are from various uh, biographies uh, of him. Uh, truculent, aloof, temperamental, brusque, cold, reserved, rude, and nomically ambiguous. Uh, and those are all in sympathetic uh, biographies. <laughs> and, um, and all of these attributes can be seen in his relations uh, with his host, Winston Churchill, during the Second World War. Equally, de Gaulle himself uh, stated that the British were characterized by, in his own words, coldness, ruthlessness, and duplicity. His insistence on being treated as a world e- uh, leader of equal import as Churchill and Roosevelt was frankly absurd when it came to the relative contribution being made in terms of men and material. When the British Empire contributed over 15 million warriors to the Allied cause, and the United States had 16.5 million men and women in uniform by 1945, the Free French were only ever measured in tens of thousands. Yet de Gaulle's demands for parity um, frustrated and irritated Lays' Anglo-Saxon, to the extent that after Operation Torch in North Africa in November 1942, which was of course conducted against Vichy French rather than the Germans, Roosevelt actively promoted the French general Henri Giraud, who had escaped from a prison of war camp and made it to North Africa to command the Free French, plunging de Gaulle into a bitter internecine battle against Giraud as they became um, both. Uh, co-presidents of the Committee Francais de la uh, Libération Nationale. Only Churchill's reluctant support of de Gaulle, who infuriated him, but whose actions in June 1940 always won his approbation because he admired courage above all other human traits, kept de Gaulle in his place. Roosevelt, um, who suspected that de Gaulle had dictatorial tendencies was particularly annoyed by the way that his actions, such as invading without warning the Saint-Pierre and Miquelon Islands off the coast of Canada on Christmas Day 1941, threatened Washington's continued diplomatic relations with Vichy France. After FDR sent Admiral Leahy, his own naval aide and friend, as ambassador to Vichy France, Leahy accused de Gaulle of sulking in London. In the course of the rows, between Churchill and de Gaulle, which were conducted face-to-face and in Churchill's execrable-sounding but just-about-comprehensible French, um, both men said precisely what they thought of each other. Churchill would invent French words, um, uh, as when he told de Gaulle, Si vous me obstaclerez, je vous liquiderez. Um, Just before D-Day, Churchill said to de Gaulle, each time I must choose between you and Roosevelt, I shall always choose Roosevelt. De Gaulle later recalled that Churchill had also said every time that uh, Britain has to choose between Europe and the open sea, she will always choose the open sea. But frankly, I believe Churchill used the far more personalised and non-nautical form of words. uh, And he probably enjoyed doing it too. Behind his back, Churchill reputedly likened de Gaulle to a female llama who has been surprised in her bath. (laughs) (coughs) There must have been a comic element to the disparity in size between the two men standing face to face shouting at each other uh, since there was a 10-inch disparity between their heights. In November 1944, Cecil Beaton photographed Charles de Gaulle and Churchill inspecting French uh, troops in the Vosges Uh, while snow was falling. It's an evocative photograph, but even in his RAF officer's hat, Churchill only really came up to de Gaulle's shoulder. De Gaulle's ingratitude towards his hosts was legendary. You think I'm interested in England winning the war, he told his British liaison officer, General Sir Louis Spears. I am not. I'm only interested in French victory. When Spears uh, simply made the logical remark, "Um, they are the same... De Gaulle replied, not at all, not at all in my view. The story is also told of when De Gaulle visited the devastated city of Stalingrad in 1944 and was asked by a French journalist what he thought. He, uh, De Gaulle spoke of un grand peuple. And it slowly dawned on the journalist that the general was actually talking about the Germans uh, rather than the Russians, not least when he made the comment um, for them to have come this far it was hushed up at the time, uh, but it's, it's pure Charles de Gaulle. In June 1943, FDR wrote to Churchill, I am absolutely convinced, uh, uh, to- talking of course of de Gaulle, absolutely convinced that he has been and is now injuring our war effort, and that he is a very dangerous threat to us. I agree with you that he likes neither the British nor the Americans, and that he would doubtless double-cross both of us at the first opportunity." He further thought de Gaulle a narrow-minded French zealot with too much ambition for his own good and some rather dubious views on democracy. By the time D-Day arrived, the rift between de Gaulle and the Anglo-Saxons was so great that even before any free French troops had landed in Normandy, de Gaulle broadcast that this was France's battle and entirely failed to mention the other allies' contribution. When Churchill had briefed him about Operation Overlord on the 4th of June, de Gaulle insisted on various conditions for his support, which began a series of negotiations that got so heated that in the early hours of the 6th of June, as Allied paratroopers were actually dropping over the Normandy beaches, Churchill ordered de Gaulle to be sent back to his headquarters in Algiers, quote, in chains if necessary. Uh, He must not be allowed to enter France, unquote. It took the uh, British Foreign Secretary Antony Eden's best diplomacy to have the order revoked. De Gaulle admitted to feeling an anxious pride in France, and well might he have for a country that was so wrecked um, so comprehensively in those two world wars. Yet because he assumed that France needed greatness in order even to be France, he simply insisted upon it, whatever the economic and strategic actualities. The British diplomat, Lord Gladwin, perceptively pointed out how undoubtedly the general's chief failing was to cast his country into a role which was beyond her power. But this curious combination of inferiority and superiority complexes defines the meaning of Gaulism, a political programme that is utterly bound up in the personality of its founder. The huge iron cross of Lorraine at Cursul... Uh, Surmer, which is in the middle of Juneau Beach, where the Canadians landed, has a plaque which describes de Gaulle as the Liberator. The Canadian 3rd Infantry Division, commanded by Major General Rodney Keller, landed on D-Day against stiff German resistance and waded through beaches soaked with the blood of their comrades to capture all their objectives on the longest day. Charles de Gaulle landed on day plus eight and uh, strode ashore to make speeches that barely mentioned the Anglo-Saxon contribution. I'll leave it up to you to decide who are the true liberators. Consider the statistics. Out of the 39 divisions assigned to the campaign in Normandy, just one was French, the 2e Division Blondet, the 2nd Armoured Division, under the command of General Leclerc, the nom de guerre of uh, Vicomte Jacques-Philippe de Leclerc. It fought very bravely to close the Falaise Gap around the Germans in Normandy, but the battle would undoubtedly still have been won without it. De Gaulle first stepped uh, foot in France on the 14th of June, more than a week after D-Day, and then only for a one-day visit to Bayeux. after which he left for Algiers and didn't return to French soil until the 20th of August. In the meantime, General George Patton's Third Army had broken out of Avranches at the end of July and driven through Brittany. The Résistants, the Communists and the maquis entirely separate organisations from De Gaulle's free French forces, were doing brave and vital work in support of the Allied forces. Especially in hampering German armored retaliation. But De Gaulle played no part in any of that from his base in North Africa. In Fuhrer Directive No. 51 of the third of November 1943, Adolf Hitler had predicted that, although territory could be lost to the um, Red Army on the Eastern Front, quote, a greater danger appears in the West, an Anglo-Saxon landing. He was correct in the sense that the landings that started the process by which France was freed were primarily made up from the English-speaking peoples. Witness the nationalities of those soldiers killed on D-Day itself. 2,500 Americans, 1,641 Britons, 359 Canadians, 37 Norwegians, 19 Free French, 13 Australians, 2 New Zealanders and a Belgian. Put another way, of the 4,572 Allied soldiers who gave their lives to liberate France on that momentous day, 0.004% were French, yet the Cross of Lorraine lords Charles de Gaulle as the liberator. In a list of his principal worries drawn up before D-Day, the Supreme Allied Commander, General Dwight Eisenhower, placed de Gaulle at the top, even above the uncertainties over the weather in the Channel. Uh, For the past four years, de Gaulle had been a perpetual irritant to Allied decision-makers, insisting upon being treated as a head of state equal in rank to King George VI and uh, President Roosevelt, even though he was very clearly no such thing. His free French forces, with their insignia of the Cross of Lorraine, were tiny yet insufferably proud, keen to magnify every minuscule and often wholly imagined slight by the Anglo-Saxons. Small wonder that Churchill later joked that the greatest cross he ever had to bear during the Second World War had been the cross of Lorraine. (laughs) Yet in order to protect self-esteem, French self-esteem, for the rest of the war and into the post-war years, de Gaulle had to create the myth of French self-liberation, however much it angered Britons and Americans. For political and prestige reasons, de Gaulle begged Eisenhower that French troops would be the first into Paris and the supreme commander was as good as his word. Nor did Eisenhower visit Paris himself until the 27th of August, because he didn't want to, he didn't wish to detract from de Gaulle's limelight. Yet despite all that, it was Eisenhower, not de Gaulle, who gave the order to General Leclerc on the 22nd of August to advance immediately on Paris. He had other units, including the American 4th Division, that could have done it, but he wanted the French to have the glory. De Gaulle merely ordered Leclerc to get to the capital before any Americans could arrive. The first of Leclerc's American-made Sherman tanks rolled up the Rue de Rivoli at 9.30am on the morning of the 25th of August. And in the surrender document signed that same afternoon by Leclerc and the German commander of Paris, General Dietrich von Scholtitz, there was absolutely no mention of either Britain or the United States. Once de Gaulle arrived in Paris, soon after the surrender, he made his great speech at the Hotel de Ville at 5 p.m. on the 25th, in which he cried Paris, outraged Paris, martyred Paris, but liberated Paris. Liberated by the people of France with the help of the armies of France, with the help and support of the whole of France, that is to say of fighting France, that is to say of the only France, the true France, the eternal France. There was no mention whatever of any Allied contribution. (laughs) Yet Paris could never have been liberated had it not been for the huge Allied effort in the 10 weeks since D-Day. Furthermore, there would have never been an uprising in the capital were Allied troops not within striking distance of it. Any number of, um, this is a quotation from the American general Omar Bradley, any number of American divisions could more easily have spearheaded our march into Paris But to help the French recapture pride, I chose a French force with a tricolor on their Shermans. In his post-war memoirs, Bradley called it, uh, called the capture of Paris, a pen and ink job on the map. General Leclerc lost a total of 76 men killed in the liberation of Paris, although 1,600 inhabitants had been killed in the uprising, including 600 non-combatants. Today, the places where the individual soldiers and resistance fell are marked all over the city and none would wish to belittle their sacrifice. But the fact remains that the only reason that Leclerc was assigned to the task was because Eisenhower could spare the, second, the French 2nd Division from far greater battles that were taking place right across northern and southern France, battles fought against cracked German units by British American and Canadian forces. The next morning, the 26th of August 1944, de Gaulle led a parade from the Arc de Triomphe down the Champs-Elysees to a Thanksgiving service in Notre Dame. When resistance leaders came up abreast of him in the parade, he hissed at them to get further back behind him. Uh, The glory was to be his alone. He was cheered to the echo. But of course, wartime crowds are fickle. When the collaborationist uh, Vichy president, Marshal Pétain, had visited Paris on the 26th of April, um, 1944, exactly three months earlier, hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen had turned out to cheer and cry, vive le Maréchal. What France desperately needed, therefore, was a myth of heroic self-deliverance. That is what de Gaulle gave them that day in August 1944, and which they came to believe uh, even to this day. For in August 2004, on the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Paris, in a 48 page special commemorative edition of Le Parisien, described by the BBC as the official French narrative, the contribution of the British Americans, uh, Canadians and other non-French forces was not so much as even mentioned until page 18. Uh, when it is claimed that the Allies uh, had not wanted to liberate Paris at all, but were only forced to send forces there once the French had effectively liberated themselves. Entering Notre Dame for a service of thanksgiving for the liberation on the 26th of August 1944, shots were fired from inside the cathedral. Everyone died for cover, except de Gaulle, who continued to walk upright and erect at his full height of six foot four minus the Kepi, towards the altar. It's still unclear whether there were Germans still holding out in the cathedral or where else the shots could have come from, but no one doubts the extraordinary courage shown by the general on that occasion, as on so many others. France cannot be France without grandeur, uh, Charles de Gaulle once said. In 1940 to 44, there was very little grandeur in France, uh, except in the actions of the French resistance and of de Gaulle himself. Many unflattering adjectives have been flung at him in the course of this lecture, mine, other historians, Churchill's, Roosevelt's, and several other people's. But nothing can detract from the central fact that he had a totally clear view of French national interest, and for him, nothing else mattered. When France had to face a fate that, thankfully, neither Britain nor America, protected by miles of seawater, uh, ever had to, French people had to come to terms with the Nazi occupation in a myriad of different ways with everything from total collaboration to full-scale resistance, with the vast penumbra of positions in between. The French actress Arletti, when uh, arrested after the liberation for spending the years of the occupation in the Ritz Hotel with a succession of German officers, uh, said something that is um, untranslatable in a family audience such as this. (laughs) Um, But in French, uh, it goes, uh, (laughs) uh, Mon corps est français, Mais mon et international. <coughs> uh, now, if everybody had taken Arlette's stance, France could not have survived. Instead, there were men and women who fought on. De Gaulle was something of a monster, true, but he was a sacred monster. Despite everything, he was a great man, easily the greatest Frenchman between Napoleon 200 years ago and the present day. It isn't given to many people in history single handedly to save the honour of their country, but such was the destiny of General de Gaulle. Besides that splendid legacy, all complaints about his ingratitude, hauteur, and occasional pettiness matter nothing, as no one appreciated more than Winston Churchill himself. Charles de Gaulle was a giant, and we should salute him as such. Thank you very much. <laughs> Now, I'll be taking questions from the audience in a few moments. If you would like to ask a question, please approach one of the two standing mics in the aisles. Uh, Before asking your question, please tell us your name. And out of respect for the other people waiting their turn, please ask one question. Um, I might just add one easy question, it'd be helpful. Uh, Two staff members are on hand if you need any assistance. Sir.
2: When, When De Gaulle was president, I seem to recall that when he would go on the weekends to his cottage outside Paris, he had no phone in his house. Is that true? And if it is, why?
1: Um, that, well, yes, that is true up until 1958, uh, until he went back to the presidency. Um, why is a really good question. I'm afraid I don't know why. I, uh, it, is, it sounds extraordinary. But then when he became president in 1958, when he, he did have a, a, a phone um, installed at, uh, at columbay um it, yes, it seems absolutely extraordinary, doesn't it?
0: So. I'm Jim Pesinich. I'm a docent here. Uh, how would you rate De Gaulle as the president of France, uh, as a politician?
1: Um, I, I deliberately in this lecture concentrated just on his war leadership because this is a series of lectures on war leadership. But... Um, uh, he really extended into his presidency a large number of the um, of the assumptions that um, one would take for granted um, in his uh, his, uh, wartime. I mean, he was the most tremendous pain in the neck for the uh, les Anglo-Saxon, of course. In 1963, he stopped um, Britain from joining the the European Union. In fact, he said non uh, the day before I was born. Um, He uh, then lectured um, the United States a lot on uh, Vietnam, in 1966, he withdrew from the NATO uh, command and control structure. In 1970, he, um, he visited Canada and encouraged the French Canadians to split off from the uh, British uh, Canadians. Uh, vive le Quebec libre, he, uh, he, he called in, uh, in Quebec. Um, he, he really did continue this, uh, this sort of sense of, um, of uh, uh, antipathy towards us. Equally, um, for a French nationalist, he was pretty fantastic. He um, uh, would—I um, mean, th- France did extremely well in, under his presidency from 1958 uh, to 1969 economically. Um, he was a fiscal conservative, but he was also um, open to uh, to uh, radical ideas. He was um, a, uh, a tough. A tough French nationalist so um, yes I, I didn't think it really fell within the purview of this speech but um, I think that it doesn't his his peacetime leadership doesn't in any way um, set him apart from his wartime
2: one
0: yeah my name Sorry. is Tom Merrill if uh, Roosevelt had survived the war would uh, de Gaulle have been able to convince the United States to give it Vietnam back and uh, if not how was he able to get, convince Truman to allow uh, France to get into Scheinbeck? To get into what, sorry? Uh, Vietnam, how, you know, at the uh, to, to to get its colony back at the end of the war. I, my understanding um, is that uh, Roosevelt was opposed to that.
1: Yes, I think um, uh, I think that would have been um, that would have been. I mean, Roosevelt did uh, hate De Gaulle and, and fear him, think that think that he was a putative uh, dictator and so on. I think though once um, uh, once the British colonies returned, were returned, it would have been, he would have found it very difficult to have um, uh, without force prevented um, the Indo-Chinese colonies going back to France. What of course um, did happen was after Dien Bien Phu in 1954, when of course um, uh, de Gaulle was at Colombay and was out of uh, out of office, um, it was really very fortunate for uh, de Gaulle not to be in office at the time of uh, DMV. He wouldn't have been able to done anything about it, but he would have been very badly damaged by it. So. Uh,
0: Fletcher Hodges, I wonder if you'd say a word about the relationship between de Gaulle and his generals during the Algerian crisis. Yes, well, I mean, it was...
1: Uh uh, it was terrible wasn't it the um uh, the, he 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 teetered on the brink of um that they teetered on the brink of uh, mutiny um on uh, on several occasions they uh, the 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 more serious of them attempted to assassinate him of course all the way through up until the uh the um early 60s he was a um uh but but no one else could have done it. it. It it took General de Gaulle to be able to to give back Algeria. Anything anyone less than the general um would have ripped French society in half. Uh there would have been there would have been there were all actually there almost were troops on the streets. So, um, in a sense, it's a a little bit like Nixon going to China. Only, only de Gaulle could uh, have given up Algeria, and the terrible relations between him and his generals, including generals who had been very brave in the war and had served uh, under him, was um, a um, a, a natural reaction of their uh, inherent um, um, positive feelings towards the pied noir. Sir. Um.
0: My name is Norman Arnoff, and I do not uh, intend, by my question, to be sarcastic or uh specious I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> or anything of that nature. But in terms of personality, how would you compare Donald Trump <laughs> to Charles de Gaulle in terms of personality? It is a serious question because I'm interested in, in qualities of leadership, uh, in, in people, and in ability to communicate. Uh. Um,
2: I
1: I think in the um, uh, I think in the in the sort of sheer extraordinary capacity of self regard. Um, <laughs> There, there there undoubtedly is something uh something there the uh the, the two and of course I mean um, Trump is the is the American gaullist you know he is the person for whom um totally untrammeled um American um uh, nationalism is a—he uh, a, a, sees it at least as a way, as a way to power, uh, completely regardless of what it will do to the international system and the uh, and the balances of power and so on. Um, so yes, I think you might have something there, but. Um, when it comes to the, uh, to the splendor of de Gaulle, to the bravery of de Gaulle, to the, um, to the actions of de Gaulle in June 1940, um, I do think we really are talking about chalk and cheese. <laughs> so.
0: Yes, uh, thank you for a marvelous oh, Speaking of
1: cheese, it was, of course, de Gaulle who said that it was very difficult to rule a nation which had 246 different types of cheese. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um you mentioned a couple of de Gaulle's uh, foreign policy initiatives uh, when he was president yet many serious scholars including Henry Kissinger consider him to be the natural heir of Bismarck how do you square the circle
1: Well I don't see the I don't see um the I mean I, I haven't lectured on Bismarck yet but I have a very high regard for Bismarck um I'm not somebody who sees Bismarck as a sort of proto Hitler figure at all I see him as a man who um who uh did bring uh Germany together at a time when anybody else would have and probably done it done it worse. Um but um but the thing about de Gaulle really um with regard to uh, to Bismarck is that De Gaulle saw himself much more as a as a Napoleon than a um uh, although he himself said Napoleon had a small soul. He was he was a great a great brain but a small soul. Um, and of course uh, the general thought of himself as a great brain and a great soul um uh he um he um considered himself rather like bismarck did at about the time of the congress of uh, vienna to oh, sorry the congress of berlin um to be the um the fulcrum on which balance of power in europe um uh balanced and um and that's why he spent so much time um talking to the non-aligned countries, uh, seeming publicly to spurn the, um, the British Americans. But when it actually came down and, and of course, being as friendly as possible to the Russians, which also irritated, uh, um, uh, numerous American and British uh, ministries and administrations. However, however, that said, when it came down to the real, um, the real crunch, uh, in, uh, in Berlin, of course, um, not to, just at the time of the airlift, but also at the time of the, um, of the building of the wall. And also when it came to the crunch with the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, de Gaulle was actually tougher than Harold Macmillan uh, and more supportive of the American stance than, uh, than the British. So yes, he saw himself as the fulcrum. But when he saw communism um, uh, winning, he, uh, he didn't mind putting his uh, weight the other way his and he actually saw an end to communism in Russia he said that he believed that um, the Russians would uh, would suck up communism in the same way that uh, blotting paper sucks up ink so uh,
0: with regard to general de Gaulle's own memoirs of, of the war how, how accurate do you think they are uh, versus how uh, how much his pride might have uh, painted the picture for him
1: Um. De Gaulle's own memoirs are uh, are utterly wonderful. That opening um, remark about how he has a certain idea of France um, says uh, says everything about uh, him and about his nationalism and about his uh, his belief in his country. It's a it's a it's a beautiful piece of um, of, uh, of literature, and it should be read as literature. <laughs> <laughs> um, equally, to, to having said that, look. Pretty much all the German generals' um, uh, autobiographies need to be taken with a huge pinch of salt. There's an entire book written by my friend David Reynolds picking up endless factual errors that uh, Winston Churchill made um, when he was writing his, uh, his book. And not just factual errors because he didn't have fact-checkers, factual errors because um, Charles de Gaulle was, uh, was in power, um during some of the um some of the writing of those memoirs and also so was um uh, Eisenhower and and Marshall and various other people who he also didn't want to irritate unnecessarily especially as he was leader of the opposition and hoping to become prime minister so you know old uh, there's that 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 wonderful uh, Shakespeare's um and about old men forget um, but my, my sense a, a lot with these statesmen is that old men forget, but old statesmen forget selectively. <laughs> <laughs> Sir.
2: Thank you. My name is Wawak I My question is, how would you describe General de Gaulle as a military commander? Was he a good tactician or a, a brilliant strategist? And can you give an examples one way or the other? Um,
1: one, one can't really, because of course he didn't actually command except, apart from the Dakar raid and, uh, overall, um, he, he was not a, he was, he was he, head of state of, of the free French. He didn't, he let Leclerc, um, fight all the battles in, um, in, uh, France because he was taking care of the politics. Um, I suspect he would have been good. He was, he was certainly, uh, immensely brave as of course in the first world war and he was a great, um, Writer about strategy, uh, Petain, uh, ironically enough, rated him tremendously highly um, in the um, in the interwar period when they worked together, um, and uh, and so yes, I'm, I'm sure had he been allowed to, um, to had he allowed himself to uh, command um, uh, troops in action, he'd have been he'd have been good, but uh, and he certainly was one of the first people to appreciate, uh, along with some very very few others, the um, value of the tank. But um, but he didn't really have a chance to. Um, One one other uh, thing, but just before you uh, leap up, um, there's a fantastic quote that I wanted to come out with. I just saw it, virtually as I was coming out here, which is um, from uh, Paul Johnson's uh, book by Paul Johnson, which said, "When he finally resigned in 1969, De Gaulle went on holiday to Ireland." Where he struck up a friendship with the president of Ireland, Eamon de Valera. They had a couple of things in common. They were both six foot four, and they shared a common hostility and suspicion of England. Um, But there was one difficulty the only language in which they could converse with any fluency was English. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed.
2: Yeah. Andrew Roberts, thank you so much. We will see you again on April 7th for Stalin, right? Thank you you very much. So good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. We are so thrilled to have our auditorium filled with all of you. Um, I always like to ask before you run off, how many members do we have with us today? We have lots of members, and so we appreciate all our members being here. You know, all your memberships help support all our programs. And those of you who are not yet members, please join. We want a, our family to just keep growing. And there's wonderful benefits. Pick up a brochure on your way out, and um, our speakers' books are available for purchase in the museum store. There will be a book signing, and thank you all again very much.